Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology with me, Tiasha Zaitz. VR and extended reality technology is becoming a well-established approach in healthcare and medicine to help treat pain management, anxiety, mental wellness, to help engage healthcare workers and students in additional training and much, much more. Thousands of studies have shown the efficacy of VR approaches for health because of the impact of the immersive experience offered by this technology. We covered VR in medicine in several episodes in the past, and I'm adding the link to those in the show notes. In today's episode, you'll hear an update on the field with Aaron Ghani, CEO of Behavior, a company providing virtual reality solutions to address pain management, anxiety, mental wellness, and social engagement. I spoke with Aaron at Health in Las Vegas, where he shared the latest on reimbursement in the U.S., shifts in digital therapeutics companies' business models, which might make VR solutions more widely accessible with direct-to-consumer approaches. I also asked Aaron about the impact VR might have on decreasing opioid use in pain management and his thoughts about VR and the rise of psychedelics, since both approaches leverage altered states of consciousness to have a positive impact on an individual's health and well-being. Do enjoy this discussion. You can also read the summary of this chat on our website. The link is again in the show notes. And if you haven't yet, do check out our newsletter at fodh.substack.com. That's fodh.substack.com. The newsletter comes out roughly once a month and offers a comprehensive overview of a specific topic. The latest edition, for example, will give you an overview of the state of the generative AI in healthcare at the moment. And the past editions have information such as how is French approaching the reimbursement of digital therapeutics. You can find an overview of healthcare and digitalization in Africa, insight into the APEC and LATAM regions, and much, much more. So do go to fodh.substack.com and find out more yourself. Now let's dive in today's discussion. So Aaron, we spoke two years ago about the state of VR. It's been widely used by today for various applications in mental health, in chronic pain management. What are some of the key things that you see have advanced in the last two years? Tiasha, thanks for the question. I'd say there's a couple of dimensions that have changed. The state of the available hardware, the platforms that we can deploy on, And we use consumer-grade, off-the-shelf hardware for what we do, as do most, not all, but most participants in the VR, healthcare, and therapeutics market. And the state of what's available continues that wonderful curve of getting better and better every year while getting cheaper and cheaper. It's higher quality, it's more comfortable, it's more convenient, it's lighter, it's more available. So just the capability of the technology 
of mixed reality has advanced a lot, which is really important because that's a big part of the end user experience. So that's one dimension. Digital therapeutics have evolved as like a sector in healthcare. And so on the one hand, we have more clarity probably than ever about regulatory frameworks and there are more participants at various stages in the pipeline of understanding from a regulatory perspective what their path is to market, right? General wellness versus class two exempt products versus prescription versus over the counter, et cetera. So that's evolving. Anybody paying even a little bit of attention to digital therapeutics knows what happened with paratherapeutics, which was unfortunate. So that has definitely had a certain chilling effect on the market. And in some circles, there's a little bit of doom and gloom. Oh, no, what are we going to do? Or the business model is going to be there. But I think one thing that's really healthy is it's causing most all digital therapeutics companies that I'm aware of to take a step back and think a little harder about what their particular path to relevance and market share and revenue is. And you have to look not broadly at the whole category to answer that, but you have to look at things like, what is the disease state that we're looking to treat? What are the characteristics of that disease for the person suffering? Who does it help or hurt? if you address or fail to address that condition, because it's different by different condition what the right path to market is. So there's a lot of that going on as well. So what did you change in that perspective? What's your business model? I know that you are betting on value-based healthcare, so maybe you can talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think uh, for behavior, we are, um, you know, my background um, is 12 years in managed care at Humana. And then I have a number of people on my leadership team who came from managed care and value-based care. We've got early and repeat investors like Senator Bill Frist, who is a titan in managed care, David Jones Jr. of Humana, Optum Ventures, and Larry Renfro and his team. So we have a lot of people that have a lot of perspective about that trajectory of change in healthcare generally and the unsustainability of our fee-for-service system and the need to go to to migrate towards value, right? The great thing about value-based care as an opening in terms of path to market for digital is the entity that is at risk for the health of a given member or population, whether it's a traditional payer, a self-insured employer, a value-based care provider who's taking risk, partial or full risk, they just want the most effective, most scalable way to improve the health of that member, they're not worried about reimbursement for any given service that they provide, right? For digital, which can scale exponentially, marginal costs just go down. If you can show up and tell a value-based risk-bearing entity, we can help your member by driving more engagement, better outcomes, driving savings, they're listening. They don't care about things like Is there a code who's going to pay me for this? They're willing to pay for it if you can generate more value for them than you're costing. And so it's an alignment of economic interests that gives, I think, all digital therapeutics or most, I should probably say most digital therapeutics, again, somewhat depending on disease state, a really great opening. And that's what we're leaning all the way into at Behavior. Mm -hmm. And what do you think about the whole question around CPT codes for VR and therapies like this two years ago? When we had a panel on the state of VR in healthcare, one of the panelists mentioned that with a little bit of creativity, healthcare providers can use some of the existing codes basically to, to cover that. So how do you see that? It doesn't seem like there's many, much progress been done. 
I think it depends on perspective. Um, different companies have chosen different paths to market and are mapping regulatory frameworks and how that intersects with reimbursement frameworks to find paths they think will work for them. I don't challenge anyone's choice of what they think the right strategy for them is because they have to make that decision for themselves. There's not one model that's being pursued. There are many. So I think in general, what I would say is to focus too much on are there codes and is there fee-for-service reimbursement is missing that larger opportunity of that's equating value creation with can I get you to take money out of your pocket and put it in mine. That's just value transfer. Digital has the ability to create value by scaling the way that only digital can, which is to say really exponentially and without limits. Marginal costs go down the more we use them, and we can drive outcomes and savings in the system. That's real value creation, and we can get rewarded for that. It's also something that payers and value-based providers and employers understand better and know how to buy. They may not understand digital therapeutics very well or virtual reality, but they do know what it's like to say to a third party, if you can engage this high-cost member population, improve their health, drive better outcomes, drive savings, they're interested in talking to you about that. You have to prove it and you have to demonstrate that ROI, but they're less concerned with exactly how you do it. And so that's our opening broadly, I think. Your focus is on uh, chronic pain. Can you illustrate how you demonstrated that value in chronic pain management? Yeah, so chronic pain is only one of the things we're focused on. So we have this pipeline all focused in mental and behavioral health. So chronic pain, anxiety, depression, opioid use disorder, and, and uh, agoraphobic avoidance in serious mental illness populations. Those are the things that are active in our pipeline right now. Chronic pain is one of our more mature products. So our chronic pain offering, as well as Game Change, which is our SMI offering, are our two most mature in terms of patients served and uh, the evidence base demonstrating efficacy. For that reason, with chronic pain in particular, we think there is this opportunity to say it's a, it's a big population, many people in need. They are generally a high-cost population, and there are not a lot of good solutions available to them. So when we talk to providers and we say, what are you doing for your patients with chronic pain? You get surprisingly unsatisfactory answers a lot of the time. We don't really have a lot of good solutions. So with a digital therapeutic that can intervene in all the ways that I just described, right? we can scale really without limits, can be very self-service, and we can drive better engagement and outcomes. It just fits. This is an example of alignment between the interests of the financial sponsor the way we can provide value and create value and then ultimately get rewarded for that. Mm -hmm. What's the relation between opioids and using VR for chronic pain management? I think the first important thing is the connection between opioids and chronic pain, right? And opioids should have been limited many years ago to short-term use for acute pain. Unfortunately, we went through a period where they were getting overprescribed all over the country, They actually don't work well at all for chronic pain. They work while you're numb, and then they wear off and leave you more sensitive. But there are many people, perhaps millions of people, on opioids for their chronic pain who they have real pain. The opioids take the pain away for a time. Unfortunately, it leaves them then more sensitive after the fact. So we need new solutions for those people. If we, if we help a person with chronic pain through our chronic pain management solution, so pain neuroscience education, calming and mindfulness practices and parasympathetic nervous system activation and critically uh, gamified graded exercise and movement. That's what's in our pain program. We can help a chronic pain patient 
better understand and manage and dial down that pain. If they're also on opioids, perhaps for the long term, they may need help getting off of those opioids. There's often a fear, a, a reluctance to come off because of a fear of that pain. And of course, they're very, we know they're highly addictive, and so they need help dialing down their their cravings, basically. And specifically, our product, it's, it's based on Dr. Eric Garland's Mindfulness-Oriented Recovery Enhancement Protocol, or MORE. So Dr. Garland is our partner. He has uh, published a lot and done many research studies published in JAMA and other top-tier publications demonstrating the effectiveness of MORE, his mindfulness protocol, for opioid use disorder, opioid misuse, and chronic pain. So we've digitized that, put it into VR, adding aspects like exposure therapy, putting the patients in the presence of cues, right? So doing cue exposure therapy to desensitize them and build their cue refusal skills with drug paraphernalia in a simulated environment, that sort of thing. So it's about rewiring these reward pathways in the brain that have been modified by the many years of opioid use and re reinvigorating the pleasure centers in the brain. Since you mentioned meditation and the neurological changes that need to happen in the brain to treat things like chronic pain, can you maybe dive into that a bit more from the perspective that there's many meditation apps, but sometimes it's really difficult to stick with them? There also might be a point where it's very hard to just self-treat with meditation apps. How does VR stand out here? And how do you see that, especially in the light of the rise of the psychedelic medicine, which basically also works on the principle of the altered state of mind? Interesting question. So I'd start with we have heard more times than I can count from people who experience meditation in VR. They will say things to us similar to, I've often struggled, I've usually struggled to do this mindfulness and meditation work, but something about being in VR makes it a lot easier to block out other distractions. And of course, it is that sort of immersive quality where we can put you in this beautiful, calming environment, block everything out. So there's a simple effect going on, simple but powerful, which is it's just easier to to calm and clear your mind, to focus on that guided exercise and building that practice. So that's one thing. The other thing is with a digital intervention like this, if it's one thing to say you have guided meditation practice in any digital form, it's another if you tailor it towards a particular disease state or a challenge that somebody's dealing with. So literally the scripts and the guidance that you're giving the user varies depending on what problem you're trying to help them with. A lot of basic meditation apps will start with simple things like body scans and interoception and just becoming more aware of your breath and your body, which is fantastic and obviously a part of it. But people can benefit from more context-specific guidance in that guided meditation process as well. So we can tailor it in that way. The final thing I'd say is related to your question about psychedelics it's an area we have not explored deeply at Behavior. We're more focused on cognitive behavioral therapies and evidence-based pain neuroscience education and movement protocols and things like that. But the people I have talked to who are excited about VR as a medium related to psychedelic treatment, what they consistently describe is VR can be very useful for calming anxiety before the, the dosing, getting people into a calmer state, 
I am not qualified to describe why being in a highly excited or anxious state when you do the dosing would be negative, but it certainly seems relevant and reasonable that you don't want to be in that sort of a, an excited state when you're going through the therapy. Pre- preparation, dialing down anxiety, calming people beforehand. Typically, there is no VR during the exposure or the, the dosing. And then afterwards, giving people an intentional guided practice and sort of re-entry to the real world. The people I have spoken to that are doing some really interesting work there, like, for instance, Shell Man at Firefly VR, describes that kind of a process. And it certainly seems uh, powerful and exciting. What are your expectations uh, about the changes that are happening in the VR industry? Where do you see the field in the next two years? What do you expect from behavior? One thing I'd say is when people say to me, oh, you have a VR company, I always stop them and say, no, we have a digital therapeutics company. It would be a little bit like saying to someone, oh, you have a smartphone app company. That doesn't mean anything, right? Parts of what we do in virtual reality, because of some of those unique mechanisms of action that that medium brings, right? That multi-sensory simulation, very powerful for addressing fear and pain and movement. As we connect with these value-based care frameworks that are going to allow us to deliver sort of digital care management broadly, engage members around their disease state, drive outcomes and savings, it starts to shift the lens a little bit on what is it reasonable to bring to bear in terms of modalities, right? We certainly, our, our origin story is in building VR therapeutics. We will soon be talking about more things that we're doing that are not necessarily based in VR, things that are on a companion app or coaching services and community connection and other things that become part of a more integrated and complete care management solution. Because really, it's all about engaging the patient or member in that fulsome experience that's going to drive that improvement in their health, improvement in outcomes and savings. So it's really not about any one modality anymore. A lot of VR providers are currently working with clinicians directly. So as a patient or as a consumer, you can't really get to this product if you self-diagnose or just want to help yourself with the help of a VR set. So how do you see the development of the market in that sense, especially since we talked about the difficulty of the digital therapeutics business model? So where is the B2C of product offering So a few years ago, there was, uh, in my opinion, too much alignment in the digital therapeutic space that there was like one model, prescription digital therapeutics, which will get reimbursed fee for service. That was PEAR's model, if you will. They were a leader in that model. Those paying attention to the space saw the recent pivot of Achille to endeavor over the counter because what they found was they were encountering a lot of friction with getting prescribers aware and then all the associated fulfillment and They had to pay the price of all the friction, but there was not fee-for-service reimbursement in the offing. And so they did some testing with over-the-counter direct-to-consumer. And for that product, for ADHD, it makes perfect sense. And by all accounts, what they've said publicly is that's working really well for them. That's causing, as it should in the industry, a lot of questions. Like, if OTC can work for a leader like Achille, maybe it can work for us. I think part of the answer to that question would lie in, what's the indication you're treating? Right? ADHD... It's terrible for the person living with it or the parents, let's say, of somebody who is struggling. Payers don't necessarily care a lot. It's not costing them a lot of money, as an example. So what we're doing is looking indication by indication in our pipeline and being open to potentially 
going over the counter, having a consumer pay for this. And then as long as you're going to ask the consumer to pay, probably makes sense to remove some of the barriers and the friction points, like having to find a prescriber who's aware and willing to prescribe it and fulfill it and so on. It's also interesting to think how that's going to impact the data that you get as the provider of the headset. And um, I don't know if there's any problems that you anticipate in that sense. You still need to protect the user's data. This is health data and very sensitive, and you have to treat it very seriously. On the other hand, if you have a direct-to-consumer relationship, honestly, the consumer can choose to give you much more unfettered access to their... It's their data. They can do anything they like with it. So in some ways... The bar is lower in an OTC model. Now, if you're smart, you're going to treat it as if the bar is still very high, right? Obviously, you have to protect that data, treat it very appropriately. But yeah, it actually makes some of those uh, data management concerns and issues a little simpler than in a traditional healthcare kind of B2B model. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health, a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast subscribe to the show or follow us on LinkedIn. Additionally, check out our newsletter. You can find it at fodh.substack.com. That's fodh.substack.com. Stay tuned.